We're going to read together that passage and then I'll pray. Okay, so let's read together from Isaiah 55. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And so, Father, we ask now that you would send forth your word, that you would send forth your word, Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal word, to be in our midst right now as we study your written word. And so we ask, let your purposes be made um, manifest in our lives during this hour, that as we study your word, you would accomplish your purpose in our midst. So we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, I'm, you can just get ready for me to do this every week, because do you remember what I did last week? Essentially, I want to know if you have any questions about what we looked at last week. Remember, last week we looked at John chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. And so it might be some people process things differently than other people. And so it might be that you went home and you thought, well, why didn't she talk about this? Or when she said that, that didn't make any sense to me. Or um, what does this mean in the scriptural text? Um, so is there anything that came up? Please don't be shy because, and I say this many times, you have a question, someone else is bound to have the same question. So if you have the courage to ask it, you're actually doing everyone else a favor. Anybody have any thoughts or even some reflections or comments about last week? Anything you went away from our time together thinking or that you felt like God showed you? I wish we could tell you. Surely. Uh, there's no judgment for that, but we're not, that's what, yeah, surely. You had something. You don't mind my call to hiding. Oh, I didn't even hear it, so you, you didn't have to. I'll take it as a huge compliment, actually. You're right. We talked about talking about the doctrine of election. We didn't ve- talk very much about it. Were you disappointed? It's okay. You can say it. And so Sarah and I were talking afterwards, and we were thinking we should bring it up again and see. Good. What? Okay. So, um, and it's funny because I did extra homework last week for myself on the doctrine of election, mm-hmm. and I have a great short-term memory. So please forgive me because my long-term memory does not extend for a week's time. Um, so I'll try to do justice to what I was uh, rereading last time. So does anybody know what the doctrine of election is? See, I'm going to turn it right back to you guys. Uh, it's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll talk. So some, ooh, that's right. I can't remember which number it is, about 36 maybe. It's 36 or 37. And it talks about election and predestination. So essentially it's a part of the article's does everybody know what the articles are, um, the 39 articles in the back of the? <laughs> They're in the historical documents section of the Book of Common Prayer, which is what we use in worship every Sunday. So if you go to the way back, and it's actually in smaller print. They want you to be able to use your glasses to read it. Um, and essentially, these 39 articles were articles of, um, of the, they're articles of the Anglican faith, of the Episcopal faith, that were written down right around the time of the Reformation when the Church of England was founded. During the, and they um, basically say, this is what we believe. 
as a church. And there are 39 different points about what we believe. And so essentially the reformers, the English reformers in, you know, in England during Henry VIII's reign and the reigns just after that were wanting to say very clearly, this is what we believe. Our beliefs are different than um, the Roman Catholic Church and here's how and why. So enumerating different things. What you'll find in them is that they are far more Protestant than you would guess. Based. Basically, a lot of people see the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Church as being Catholic light, like Roman Catholic, but light. Um, Robin Williams even has a joke about that, that we're uh, light on the guilt. <laughs> I, I think it's funny because it's making fun of us, so I'm okay with it. But, um, but actually, we're, we're Protestant theologically, and those articles show that. So one of the things that you'll see in the articles is that um, there are um, the articles affirm some things that are different between us and the Roman Catholics. Essentially, um, that there are two sacraments. That's one big thing that we talk about, two dominical sacraments, two sacraments that Jesus himself commands us to do that all commands all Christians to do. Do you know what those are? Baptism. Baptism. That's right. And Roman Catholics have seven. We have two. But the seven are not all things that are just prescribed in Scripture. And they might be good things, but we say, well, they're, but they're not sacraments, like with a big S. Big S, Jesus told us to do it. Um, but so then another article is this about election and predestination. And so essentially we believe... Or the Anglican faith, we say we believe in election and predestination. We believe that um, some are chosen to believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord Lord and Savior. That essentially, and that that chosenness, um, election is the word used because of it being this aspect of choosing. And we're saying we believe this because we believe that scripture shows this to be true. So essentially, when, when you look at scripture, when you look at the big picture of scripture, You see in the Old Testament that God chooses Abraham. Remember, he chooses Abraham. He calls him. He speaks to him. And he says, I'm going to make a very great people out of you. Your descendants are going to be countless. Your descendants are going to be so numerous that they will be, um, there will be more of them than there will be sand on the the seashore and stars in the sky. And then um, from Abraham, he then chooses. Remember, he chooses Essentially, um, Isaac is the son through whom this chosen race will be, this chosen nation, um, not Ishmael. Then within Isaac, it says, you know, he talks about Jacob and Esau. Jacob have I loved. And Jacob is the chosen son, even though he's not the oldest and the firstborn. And then you see it even within um, then Jacob's 12 sons become the, um, the chosen people of Israel chosen by God, chosen to be in covenanted relationship with God so that they would be um, the holders of the law given through Moses and that as they have this law that's like a document that shows us what God's holiness is like. Remember the Ten Commandments and all of the other explanations of the Ten Commandments throughout the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. That shows us what God's character is like? What does it mean to be holy? What does it mean to be like God who is perfect? Well, he says to his people, here it, here it is. This is what it means to be holy. This is what it means to be like me. And you, because I've chosen you, I'm calling you and asking you to be like me. And he gives them the blueprint for holiness. And he gives them the blueprint for holiness. We know why, right? 
so we would know what God's character is like, so that they would then, as the chosen people of God, reflect his holiness in the world. Um, so they're chosen for this task, and we see throughout the, people, the history of the people of Israel that they fail at this task, right? What's that? I just said they're human. They're human. They do the best they can. No, no more or less fallen than we are, and yet fallen and sinful. And, and they fail at keeping the law, just like we fail at keeping the law. So within that, um, I, I had a professor who once said this cho- idea of chosenness is best depicted um, as, an, as an hourglass. So you think of the shape of an hourglass, you think of this broader, um, all of humanity, and God then whittling it down to um, the chosen people of Israel. And then from there, um, within the chosen people of Israel, when we see Jesus coming onto the stage of salvation history, when Jesus is born and lives as the righteous one, he is the only one who fulfills the law, who obeys the law perfectly. And he's perfectly righteous. And you see in that, and throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament, you see the writers of the New Testament using chosen language. Chosen. Jesus is the chosen one. He is the chosen son of God. He is the new Israel. You see it even in Matthew. In Matthew, there's this this example where it's talking about how Jesus went to um, Egypt and was with his parents in Egypt when he was a little tiny boy that they had to go there to flee from Herod. Do you remember that in Matthew? And in Matthew 2, it says that this was to fulfill the prophecy. And there Matthew quotes the prophet Hosea and says, Out of Egypt I called my son. But if you were to flip back to Hosea and see what is Hosea talking about, Hosea is talking about the whole people of Israel. And Matthew is taking that whole people of Israel language and using it to talk just about Jesus. Jesus is the culmination of the people of Israel. He is the chosen one. So again, going back to that hourglass, he is God's chosen one, God's chosen son. The son language used about the people of Israel is then applied just to Jesus. And from there as Christians, that's how we understand our election. How are we chosen? Except that we're chosen because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, we're chosen to be a part of the people of God, but it's through faith in Jesus Christ, not through anything that we've done. And that gift of faith and um, the grace that we receive, um, that salvation grace that we receive through Jesus's death, that itself is completely God's work in us. And that's the whole point of the doctrine of election, to say, um, I have nothing to offer. God has chosen me based on nothing I've done. And the act of being chosen for faith, chosen to believe, I am, um, I'm, I, I'm undone. I've done nothing. And it's that, that being chosen to believe in Jesus Christ is a free gift. Um, and it's one way of talking about faith in Jesus Christ. But the confusing part, right, is about, well, if you're chosen to believe, and this is where the Calvinists end up going, then does that mean that God actively chooses some to not believe in Jesus Christ? And that doesn't seem very fair to us, does it? Right. Um, I think that in this discussion about chosenness and predestination, I prefer, I'm a a language person, as you know. I'm always like, oh, the Greek, the Greek. I think language is very important. And I think that when we look at the biblical language, the word chosen is used in elected, and that's falling, you know, bringing bringing, drawing out the history of the people of Israel and the language used to describe the constituted people of Israel as the people of God. And Christians are 
the constituted people of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So th- that language is completely appropriate. But I think in terms of um, what is actually going on, we talk about destined. Um, there's a sense in which those who believe are destined for belief, and yet that has nothing to do with us. And it highlights how it has nothing to do with us. So how then does it mean then that some are destined for, to, for disbelief? And I always, I always say no because of scripture. And the reason why I say no to that, not that there isn't some hint of that in Scripture, but it's not as though God is maliciously choosing some and not choosing others and saying, I like you, you I don't like. Because that's not how God works. God loves every single one of us as his good creation. And we see it right in John. John talks a lot about this choosing. Remember, we were looking at it because of John 6. Um, I know who will follow me. He says, and this is the passage that sparked it all. There are some of you here who do not believe, Jesus says in John 6, 64. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And Jesus said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So there's that sense in which God is somehow empowering some people to believe that the actual act of believing in Jesus is something that derives from God himself and not from any merit of our own. It's not that we're somehow smarter, somehow wiser, somehow more discerning. It is God's own gift itself that brings about faith. So then how do we deal with this mystery of God's character and what does it mean for those who don't believe? Is God actively choosing for some not to believe. And again, I'll say, I don't think so. No, I wouldn't. I would say no. So the doctrine of election is a mystery. But when you look at John chapter 3, um, that famous verse, John chapter 3, verse 16, God so loved the world. And in John, the world, that word world is cosmos, cosmology. You know, we get it from... All that sense of all of creation. But in John, it has an, a very specific semantic meaning. In John, the world, the world typically signifies that part of creation that rejects Jesus. That part of creation that rebels against God. That part of um, creation, by, and by that, that part of us as human beings that is sinful and reje- rejects God and rebels against God in sin, and then specifically, it's in John, those who don't believe in Jesus. So it doesn't say it explicitly in the text, but when you look at all of John, he uses this word, the world, to talk about the part of creation, all of humanity that rejects Jesus specifically, and that rejects God through rebellion. Does that make sense? So when, when, when John says God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He's saying God loves everyone. Jesus came to die for everyone, and especially for everyone who has rebelled against God. In other words, every single one of us, even though only some will believe. Does that help in knowing what is God's character in this? Then people get stuck on, um, and when we look at the passage from John 6 that we talked about a few weeks ago, Jesus knows the beginning from the end, and I'll say that again, um, he, or the end from the beginning. I got it wrong. Jesus knows the end from the beginning. Jesus knows the end of all human history. He knows the end of our lives. 
because he is God, because he's sovereign, because he's all-knowing, that famous word omnipotent, oh no, that's all-powerful, omniscient, he's omniscient, so he knows the end from the beginning, and scripture is attesting to this right here in John 6. So Jesus knows our human hearts, he knows um, whether or not we believe or not, and he knows at the end of all things who believes and who does not believe. I see a question. Is there a question? No, um, as you were talking, I was thinking about passage, and I can't find it, where, where Jesus is lamenting over Jerusalem, and he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, sending the prophets. I think it's um, Luke 19, I think. Okay. Yeah. Yep. But he says, would that you would have come to me, and I would have gathered you under mm-hmm. my wings. And I love that part of God just wanting And, and, and so, and I don't think, I will say this, you know, election is a Calvinist doctrine. It's something that came about through the Reformation that people said, this is in scripture, and they tied it to grace. They understood it as being God's grace to us that we even begin to believe. And the important thing about that is um, it brings about assurance of salvation. Am I holding on through faith to God, or is God holding on to me? If I'm the one who's holding on to God and my salvation rests on my grip on God, heaven forbid, I've got slippery hands. And then the, so we want to know that assurance that it's through faith, as I believe in Jesus, he is then holding on to me. His grip on me will not fail. Um, so there's that sense of that grace, that, that God, the work of salvation is God's work in and for us um, and not through something we do. Yeah. He desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Exactly. And so I think uh, I, that's why I find it unproductive to, um, I've, you know, in the Middle Ages, theology got to such a point and it got so detracted from the Bible itself that people, you would have these theologians in the universities in Paris arguing about how many angels could dance on the head of a pin. You know, that's the classic thing that we refer to, and about how extravagant and removed from Scripture our historical documents about what God has done in human history for fallen human beings. We've got, you know, they got so distant from that that um, that it didn't bear any relevance, really. And, and I think, and I'm not saying that about double predestination or some of the, but the idea is, well, what is that going to do? How is it based on scripture? And how is it going to help people believe in Jesus? And it, it's, I just find it helpful to just not even go there. Let's just keep looking at scripture and looking at what God says about how much he loves the whole world. And then the reality that some people just don't believe in Jesus. And wh- how can we explain it when the truth is so apparent? to those who do believe. Does that help with election and predestination? Do you want to come back at, a, at me and at those who've brought up other scriptural passages to talk about it? I don't think so. Well, feel free to, though. It is, a, is that the thing that has been troubling for you about it, the idea of, well, if some are chosen, then that means some are not chosen, and how could God do that? That's usually the biggest difficulty with it. And, um, 
And I think that we see in Scripture both things. We see in Scripture, again, that those who are who believe in Jesus Christ are chosen to be the new people of God, the new people of God that's constituted through faith in him. And that, that our faith in Jesus is itself a gift from God. And something that we haven't somehow earned or had something special about us that made us more inclined to believe. Um, but it, it is entirely a gift from God. And so that explains the baffling conundrum of why some people believe and some people don't believe. Um, but we know that God loves every single person and that Jesus came to die for every single person, whether they would believe or not. Okay. Yes, Jane. Just remind everybody of something Paul Walker used to say. He used to say, as I go forward, it looks like it's all me. Yes. Exactly. And that's a good, it's just an interesting perspective. I think that's a really good, and that he's, he's talking, someone else, Someone famous said, I mean, Paul's famous, but someone famous said that. <laughs> yeah, I know, there aren't. And I don't know who it is, but it's such a great way of looking at it. Yeah. Anybody else on that? Yeah, Lenore. Unloose a can of worms. <laughs> Does this lead into the free will, the, how, the, how that works? Yes. But again, I, I would go with Jane's comment on that from Paul. And free will, people, when people are talking about free will and an election, first of all, there's the election and predestination, which are they're talking about the same thing, and double predestination. Remember, double predestination is the doctrine that, well, if some are chosen, then some are not chosen, right? And that's what we're, we were just talking about, that idea. Then there's the election free will discussion do have, and do you have the choice right I mean, this right so theologically this is different some people and some people talk about it in terms of well do I have the choice of what kind of salad dressing I have on my salad at night well I only have one bottle in my fridge so I don't but some people you know <laughs> but that is the <laughs> I'm single it's just me I just need the one that I like but um but the um, but some people talk about that and say, well, of course I choose which salad dressing I want. God doesn't dictate what salad dressing. I wasn't destined to use this salad dressing. So the argument, and I've heard people splitting hairs and arguing to death about it, that the discussion about election and free will, it's always about salvation that we're talking about. Choosing, did I, and the question is, did I choose Jesus or did Jesus choose me? And I think of it like that, Hand holding, right? Will you hold my hand? Yeah. Are you holding my hand or am I holding your hand? No. We're hanging in there. We're hanging in there. We're hanging in there. But again, what I was saying before, is, is it my grip on God that keeps me believing in Jesus or God's grip on me? And again, it's the kind of thing where it's always God's grip on me. And that's what gives us that assurance of salvation. Because if it was up to us, our hands are too slippery. Um, and, and so that's where election comes into play with the free will question. Is it, uh, is it of my own free will that I maintain my relationship with God and I'm running the race and here we go? And I'm, you know, it's, it's by grace that we've been saved and it's by grace that we're continuing to walk with Jesus through faith so that... Um, so that that question of free will, again, think about it as who is the agent? Who's the active person in the relationship? And when it comes to God, it's always God. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> right, right. 
So um, that does that help at all with um, election and free will? Well, you, well, we can talk some more about it. We'll have to, I'll have to meditate too and do a lot more studying, which I will do. Anybody else? How do okay. you know if you're not the chosen? You why bother if you're not? I find those, I find those head games. So you know that there was, and you see it with within a lot of the Congregationalists in Massachusetts historically. And so I do know this. One of my, one of my ancestors was writing was forbidden to have Holy Communion in Northampton, Massachusetts, because she, um, the the minister said she was a notorious sinner, and she had done nothing public that anyone knew about. Um, and her her son um, became a Unitarian because he thought what a terrible thing for the minister to say. And then he went back and he read his mother's journal, and she said, "How does he know that I'm a sinner? Of course I'm a sinner." And just was very humble about it in her journal. She knew that she was not obedient to God's law. But that wasn't a sign of whether or not she was a Christian or not. It was the wrong question, right? And so, but yet in reading her journals, this young man came to faith. But so the question is not, um, and that's the question that a lot of the Calvinists started, they started to go down the garden path and say, well, we need to see the signs of regeneration to say that this person is chosen and a part of the elect, otherwise they can't come to Holy Communion. And that's, that's, that's where I say they went off the deep end, and that's why I'm not a Calvinist. So, um, Does that help with that, Charlotte? Don't worry about it. <laughs> I, that's what I would say. Don't worry about it. Okay, so we're going to start to look. We're just starting. Just now we'll start to look at John chapter 7, verses 14 through 24. And remember that um, right now we're, I'm just going to give you about 30 seconds of context. We've been looking at the book of John. Remember, in the book of John we have um, all of these 21 chapters, and the first 12 chapters I've artificially designated in the tradition of some of the scholars that I prefer to read, artificially designated designated chapters 1 through 12 as the book of signs. The reason why we call it the book of signs is because of the words that John uses to describe the miraculous deeds of Jesus. Instead of saying miraculous deeds or mighty works or miracles, the way the other gospel writers say, John very characteristically and significantly uses the word sign to describe Jesus' miracles. And he's very specific about which miracles he includes. It's possible that he knew about the other gospels and had read them. And he's saying, I'm picking these seven signs to talk about. And he does that because seven is a very important number. And the reason why he calls them signs is because they are not just wonderful, amazing, miraculous deeds in and of themselves that show that God is God and that God is working in and through Jesus, and that Jesus is in fact God, but they are also signs that point to a truth. Truth is very important for John. And the truth that these seven signs are pointing to is Jesus' own identity. So we just saw a sign in chapter 6. There's no sign that Jesus actually does in chapter 7. Um, but here we are in the book of signs where he's explaining the meaning of the miraculous deeds that he's done while he's also teaching. And so in chapter 7 at the beginning last week, we looked that Jesus is going down to Jerusalem. And he's going down to Jerusalem for one of the great feasts of the Jewish calendar. And that's the Feast of Tabernacles, where the Israelites would remember God's provision for them in the desert when they wandered about 
for 40 years in the wilderness after God had brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery and bondage, and just before they were able to enter the promised land. So for 40 years, they wandered around in the desert. They didn't have homes to live in, so they lived in tents. And they didn't have enough water. And remember, God struck the rock in the, or Moses, God told Moses to strike the rock in the wilderness and streams of water flowed out of that rock in the desert. And so they remember that miraculous provision of God in the desert in this feast of tabernacles. And so they would live in these tents for a week. They'd leave their homes. Many of, most of them would travel to Jerusalem on pilgrimage. They'd get to, pilgrim, um, to Jerusalem and they'd build these little lean-tos and tents with palm branches and other kinds of branches. And they would live in the tent for a week. And they would worship every day in the temple. And there was a libation, a pouring out of a drink offering in the temple as a reminder of the water that God brought out of the rock in the wilderness many, many centuries ago. So they celebrated again and reminded themselves of that. They lived in these temporary dwellings. And then we'll see when we get to chapter 8 that light is also an important part of the Feast of Tabernacles. And Jesus is using all of these images in the content of his teaching in chapters 7 and 8. That's why it's important to remember where he is and why he is where he is. Geographically, he had been in Galilee just the, during chapter 6. And now we find him going traveling back to Jerusalem for this festival. So he goes down, and remember his brothers were saying to him, come with us, come publicly with us so everyone can see who you are based on your miraculous deeds. He's saying, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go up to Jerusalem privately because I can't be controlled by you. I am a Messiah in my own way at my own time, which is actually God's timing. Remember, we looked at God's timing being the Kairos time, not chronos, not that chronological sequential time, but that it's the right time. And Jesus is saying the right time has not yet come. When he's talking about his time, what is Jesus talking about in John? Do you remember? Does anybody remember? When he talks about his hour, his destined hour. He doesn't say destiny, but that's contained within the word kairos or the way that the word aura, hour, is used by John. In the Gospel of John, when Jesus talks about his hour, he's talking about the moment for which he came to live. And that moment is his actual death. The hour in John, it talks about the hour of Jesus' glorification. And the hour of glorification is in John is the very climax of the book. The pinnacle of the book is that moment of Jesus' death. So Jesus is saying, no, not, it's not time yet. It's not time for me to die. He knows that he's going to die. He knows that people are really trying to kill him. And it says that at the beginning of chapter 7 in verse 1. And we'll see it again in our passage for today. So he's down there. He's, he's in Jerusalem. He's there in private. And he goes into the temple in verse 14. And he starts to teach. And what happens when he starts to teach? But everyone begins to marvel at his generous words, at his authority, at his learning. They say, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Well, has Jesus ever studied? What are they talking about? Jesus certainly knew the scripture, and that's what they're marveling at. They're marveling at his learning, his, um, his, how well he knows scripture. Um, but essentially they're saying, He's never trained. We know he hasn't trained with a rabbi because he isn't a rabbi now. 
that was their seminary. He never went to seminary. How could he talk about the Bible with such knowledge? And not just with such knowledge, but with such authority. Because it was the custom of the rabbis to quote other rabbis. So they would say this, and then they would say, but that's, and the reason why this is true is because so-and-so said it. Um, and the, then, um, and it would go back in this train of teachers. Well, the reason why so-and-so said it is because, uh, why this is right is because so-and-so said it. We actually, if we fast forward a little bit, we see this same phenomenon happening in the early church with the apostolic authority. That's why we talk about the, Apostle, the Apostles' Creed is something, it was the, the distilled truths of, of the gospel, the distilled truths of the Christian faith that was um, assented by all of these apostolic churches, those churches where one of the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ had been a leader. And the reason why they had this strength of apostolic authority several generations down the road, or even just a few generations down the road, was because they authenticated the teaching based on saying, well, this is what so-and-so said, and so-and-so sat at the feet of so-and-so, and and that person sat at the feet of so-and-so, and that person sat at the feet of Polycarp, who sat at the feet of Ignatius, who sat at the feet of John, who sat at the feet of Jesus. So you see this parentage, this ancestry of teaching, and that was their way of saying, no, what I'm saying is right and true because I have this unbroken line of teaching back to Jesus Christ himself. So that's what the early church would do to authenticate and say, no, this really is the gospel. That is not what Jesus taught. This is what Jesus taught, and I know because I was taught by someone who was taught by someone who was taught by an apostle of Jesus Christ. Um, and that's essentially what the rabbis did as well, rabbinic teaching in the Jewish, um, in the Jewish faith. Um, does, that make any, does that make sense to you that they would base their authority on the authority of the person that preceded him? Well, do you see, in light of that, how what Jesus is doing is different? Jesus is not quoting anybody. He's not quoting his teacher and his teacher's teacher and his teacher's teacher before that. He's saying he's sent from God himself. I had a strange, um, you know, I've been talking about my dentist a lot here. Can you tell that I've had dental work done recently? (laughs) So you can always know about me that if I'm talking about something a lot, it's been on my mind. I just reflect about what happens. Um, So my new dentist, obviously I have a new dentist who's a Birmingham dentist, and he... um, he was looking at some of my fillings and saying, maybe this is too personal, you have to tell me, Deborah, we don't talk about our fillings in the South. Um, <laughs> I don't know. But he was, he was looking at my fillings and he was saying, those are really good fillings. I said, oh, no, I have them. Well, my dentist in high school, we lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and my dentist had gone to Harvard. He was a very good dentist, and he was the best I'd ever had, as a de- you know, best dentist I'd ever seen. And, he, and then I could tell he was, he was a little insecure about that. And so he started to tell me that he studied with a man who studied with a man from Harvard, <laughs> who went to the Harvard Dentistry School. And I said, well, I'm sure your feelings will be really wonderful as well. But you see that we rely on these other sources of authority to authenticate our work. That's exactly what my dentist was doing, right? He was name dropping, name dropping from Harvard. Well, Jesus is not doing any name dropping. He's going straight to the source himself. And it's because he is sent directly from God. And so he is referencing that when he says, my teaching is not mine. 
He says this in verse 16, but his who sent me, and he talks about his authority or the authority of the one who sent me. And he's essentially saying the reason why I have such great learning about scripture is because I got it from God himself. I sat directly at the feet of God. I've learned directly from God. And there might be people who you hear saying this now, well, God said to me, God told me, God, this. Um, it's always through a fallen human filter, and that's something to remember. But when Jesus is saying this, it's not through a fallen human filter. It's gold. You take it to the bank. It's directly from God himself. This is, um, doesn't need to be tested the way they say test. You know, In the early church, they would say test all things. Test it and see, is this really from God? Especially when it's coming through the mouth of someone else who's a fallen human being. But when it's coming directly, when it's coming from Jesus Christ, um, he is um, the one who has known the Father, and he's pointing here to his pre-existence, that he is the eternal word who existed in heaven with the Father before becoming a man. And John, so John is here pointing back, he's reminding us, Hey, remember what I said in the prologue in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, Jesus has an authority that's unlike the authority of someone, of anyone else that these people have ever heard. And he speaks, um, he speaks um, not just on his own authority for his own glory. He says this in 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. I'm going to reverse these things on your on your outline. Well, first of all, Jesus, notice he doesn't say the one who speaks the, the one I'm speaking true words. He's not talking about true words. He says that he's saying he is true. Jesus is true. Jesus is real. And Jesus is, it's almost like he's, this is the preview of what he will say later in chapter 14, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is true. He in his very person is true and brings truth to a fallen world, a world where lies are too easily accepted. His teaching is true, but he himself in his very being is true, is the truth. He brings truth. He is the truth itself. Um, and I think of that in terms of what is real. What is reality? You know, what, what is real? What's important? What, um, what really matters and makes a difference in our lives? And that um, Jesus being the truth, um, anything apart from his presence in our life is, is not true. You know, unless Jesus is involved, it's not important. It's not real. That true reality, the best um, reality in this world and in this life comes through Jesus Christ. I'm getting all philosophical on you, but does that make sense? (laughs) There's no other way to say it except that Jesus is the truth. He's the truth. Uh, He stands alone. Um, So he's saying that he's true. And he's saying, um, and then what I love about this, talk about the glory. He Jesus does not seek his own glory. I'm sure you know people who seek their own glory, who, um, um, and that's a danger for any one of us clergy or public teachers, is that there would be some kind of egotistical personal dividend that comes from getting up in front of people and talking about, even if it's talking about something wonderful like God, that there's somehow this 
feeds it feeds this unhealthy part of fallen human nature, and that's a constant struggle for me, um, as I'm sure it is for most people, or I hope it is for most people who speak. That um, that it it really does. It's not about me up here. You know, again, to be like a sign pointing to something else and to not receive the glory or the benefit of, of teaching, but rather that God would receive the glory and the benefit of, you know, if there's anything true that I say, it's for God's benefit. It's because it then brings people closer to God and it has really nothing to do with me. But Jesus is saying this, and what he's saying about it, what I love about it, is you get this window into how the Godhead works. How does the Trinity work? Um, well, we talk about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. What is it like? What's, the, what's that relationship like? Have you ever wondered? How can there be three? Okay, three in one. How does that work? Well, three persons and one God. We look at that and we say, well, how is it that you're a different person and I'm a different person? But remember, we were just holding hands. Mm-hmm. So we were together in that moment. And there was a closeness in that moment. Well, within the Godhead, you think about it, and there are, but we're he- fallen human beings, right? Mm-hmm. We can only ever be so close. Even in a marriage where you see such a closeness and such an intimacy, where you know, I would hope you know almost everything about your husband. Maybe there are some things you'd rather you didn't know about him, but. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that marriage is the, be- the closest analogy um, for us to what it's like for the, for the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And you see it in Genesis. God says, let us make them in our image. Our? Hmm. For a monotheistic Hebrew faith, Genesis says, Genesis says, our image. And I love as a Christian to look back at that and say, it's the Trinity right there in, in Genesis. God says, let us make them in our image. And then it says, male and female, he created them. Let us make man in our image, and yet the content of what that image of God is, um, so, many, so much ink has been spilled about what does it mean as human beings to be made in the image of God. But right there we see that when God makes humanity, men and women, as men and women together, and in this marriage, this first marriage of Adam and Eve, he's showing that the content of what it means to be God. God is essentially a community of persons who are so united in love that nothing could ever divide them, that they are even called one. And we say that about marriage, too, that two become one in marriage. It's a mystery. How do two become one person, one unit, one household? And so um, even the imperfections of marriage, even despite its imperfections, those moments when it really works, uh, those are the moments that show us what the Trinity is like. And so how is that unity expressed except through love? And what kind of love are we talking about that exists between the persons of the Trinity? And what kind of love then really makes a marriage worth having? Is it the Valentine's heartsy love? Is it the, um, what is that love? And Joe talked about this on Sunday, thankfully. What a, what a, I love that passage. But remember, love is patient, love is kind. The kind of love that we're talking about is not the fl- you know, flutterbys in your belly. Butterflies, sorry. It's a, it's a throwback to childhood. It's not butterflies in your stomach. The love that's being talked about is that self 
sacrificial giving, that denying of oneself on behalf of the other person, that saying, um, no, you go, no, you, um, and I love chivalry in the South. I went back home, I went to Philadelphia over Christmas, and no one held the door for me. Uh, I thought, what's the matter with you people? You're supposed to hold the door for me. But that is just one little description of that after you. No, you go first. No, you go first. And I think that the marriages that I see that just blossom have it where both people are saying, no, after you. No, have it your way. No, and I'm doing this motion with my hands because it is described, theologians have described this dance or this relationship between the persons of the Trinity as a dance and as a gracious dance, a giving of oneself and saying, no, after you. No, let's go, out to, let's go to where you want to go to dinner. But what's beautiful about it is that both people are doing it. And that's what you see in the Godhead. And so what you see here is that Jesus is saying that he does not seek his own, author- his own glory. He seeks the glory of the Father. He wants God to be exalted. And he wants God to receive all of the adoration and the worship of people on earth. And you see um, what's so beautiful about it is that you see, and you can look at those passages as well, where you look at... Um, Jesus wanting to give glory to the Father in chapter 12. You don't have to flip off, flip and just read it really quickly because we're, um, I'm always running out of time. Um, let's see. So um, Jesus is talking about the hour of his death approaching and he says, Now my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus is actively saying, I really don't want to die, but if it brings glory to the Father, then so be it. He's submitting his will out of love for the Father. And out of love for us, but out of love for the Father. And then when you flip, if you were to flip to John 17, what you see is that it's not just Jesus who's giving glory to the Father and saying, no, after you, and doing that gracious courteous bow essentially but it's the father that does it in return and the holy spirit is a part of this dance as well but you see in john 17 that the um that jesus is um praying and he's praying father the hour has come and now he's asking the father to glorify him glorify your son that the son may glorify you glorify me and i'll glorify you There is that reciprocity of self-giving and self-offering. And here here Jesus is also talking about his own death, that his death is a a glorified thing. Um, He's asking that God would glorify him in the presence of um, his disciples. And now, Father, he says in verse 5, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Any questions about that, about that glory, about the glory existing within the Godhead, about Jesus essentially here, when he's talking about his authority and he's teaching, he's saying as an act of love, if I say anything right, it's really not for my benefit. It's so that you would know God, so that you would be drawn into relationship with God the Father. It's kind of confusing and heady. So if you have any questions, that's, that's fine. I just yeah, okay. Hearing you say um, Godhead, that that term I thought was used by Mormons. It's 
I'm showing my ignorance here just a little bit. But, um, uh, and I asked someone I know who is a Mormon mm -hmm. about the Godhead. And it was the same. You know, I just didn't really know her. A it, Christian saying. Christian. Well, I guess Mormon's a Christian. But I mean, no, they're not. I'm believing what Deborah's saying. We can do that next week. No, no, no. No, no, no. But well, and you and I can talk, Charlotte. It has to do with with Jesus, and do do they what 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 are their scriptures? And you'll see that they place most Mormons place more emphasis on you know the Book of Mormon than on the Christian Bible. They started out Christian, but then. But he wasn't a Christian either. No. Okay. Um, just, just checking. <laughs> he ripped out his Bible. Um, so at, no, no, no. So, um, but that's helpful to hear that when I talk about what do I mean when I talk about the Godhead, I'm talking about three and one. How do you talk about three and one? The math doesn't equal up. Do you say them? Do you say God? Do you say him? Do you say one? Do you say three? You say, that's why the Godhead is a convenient linguistical way of saying, we don't know, there's three persons, one God. What pronoun do we use? <laughs> you know, <laughs> when we're talking about God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that's, that's the convenient teacher, preacher, theologian way of saying, I mean, all, I mean, all three persons, one God. But it's going to get awkward if I start saying, I can't say them, but I mean all three persons. Um, okay, so uh, then we get into what Jesus starts to say. Have you noticed this? If you got a chance to read it at home, Jesus is talking about glory, authority, truth. And then in 19, he just goes right to Moses in the law. It seems really weird. So I have it down as two seeming non sequiturs. Has, Moses, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. And then another non sequitur. Why are you trying to kill me? Sounds very paranoid of Jesus, doesn't it? But when you look back at verse 1, you re remember they really are trying to kill him. So he's essentially challenging them and saying, what? no, really, why are you trying to kill me? Because people are trying to kill you, him. And as we, you know, if you read ahead for next week, you'll see people literally are trying to arrest Jesus on the spot. And even further down the road, at the end of chapter 8, people pick up stones to stone him. He's almost killed during this trip to Jerusalem, but he, ma he makes it because he's God. But, um, so he, he's addressing them and he's referring back to, um, he starts to talk about this one deed that he did in verse 21. I did one deed and you all marvel at it. Do you remember what deed it is that he's talking about? He hasn't done anything in chapter 7. What would he be referring back to that happened in Jerusalem that these people would know about that he did? Do you have any recollection? It's okay if you don't. He healed this man. That's right. Rem that's right. Remember, because chapter 5 was an important one. We talked about it a little bit. He healed the man on the Sabbath at the pool of Bethesda. Remember? If you flip back to chapter 5, you'll see he healed the man on the Sabbath who was paralyzed. And people were so upset, not because he did this wonderful thing and healed him, but they're upset that he did this wonderful thing on the day when you're not supposed to do anything, on the Sabbath day when you're supposed to rest. So Jesus is, uh, it's interesting that he just 
Um, it seems like a non, non sequitur, but he, people really are trying to kill him. And it really is because of his healing on the Sabbath. And he's referring back to it. And he's saying, I did that. Um, and he's justifying his behavior right now. And he's not just justifying his behavior, but he's challenging them to have a different perspective on the law of Moses. So he's saying, he starts talking about Moses. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. Remember, God told Abraham to circumcise all the males in his household as a sign of the covenant between Abraham and God. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. See, he says that in verse 22. It says um, that circumcision had to be on the eighth day. That was a part of the rules. That was part of the law about circumcision, that you would circumcise a male infant on the eighth day. And to this day, that's still the Jewish practice, right? Well, they they had this conundrum because what if the baby was born on a, I can't even do the math. Thank you. Yes, Charlotte. I need a mathematician all the time. Like how many, I can't even count to eight. See? So if a baby was born on a Saturday, the baby would have to be circumcised the next Sunday. Except it wouldn't be a Saturday. It would be a Friday to because their Sabbath is a Saturday. Right, whatever. Yeah. Right, yeah. So it would be um, Friday to Saturday. They would, and they would absolutely ba- um, circumcise that baby on the eighth day. So they, are, they're, they make room for that. They allow for that to happen on a Sabbath. And Jesus here, what he's doing, he's making an argument from the lesser to the greater. Well, you do this, and this is great, but it's not that that it doesn't have that much of an effect. Why would you not do this, which has such a wider and broader effect on the Sabbath, essentially? What he's saying is, you're judging me because I healed a whole man on the Sabbath? When in the law, um, the law of Moses says that you should do good deeds. You should do deeds of mercy are permitted on the Sabbath, and even they're obligatory on the Sabbath. Um, in that if... And I, um, that if something bad is going to happen to someone else's property, you need to go recover that donkey um, on the Sabbath. You need to um, restore things that have been broken. It's okay to do that. And so um, Jesus is saying that, um, that circumcision is just about one thing. Circumcision is a sign of the covenant. Circumcision, though, had a bigger context And the purpose for circumcision, yes, it was a sign of that covenant with Abraham, but it was a sign also, and you see it in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, and then also in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, and also in Jeremiah 4, verse 4, that circumcision was not just about the physical removal of skin, we're all women here, but it is about a spiritual circumcision. It is a sign of a spiritual circumcision. And that spiritual circumcision was a circumcised heart was what God really wanted. A heart that had the stubbornness and rebellion removed from it. That had sin removed from it. And so that's the hope. And what you see is that that's the ideal. But you see, even as the law is given, in Deuteronomy, there's this expectation that the law would be broken by sinful human beings, that the circumcision would only be outer for the people of Israel and not inner. And you see it in this expectation that there would come a day when circumcision would be an inward thing. And there's this prophecy in Jeremiah about the circumcision of the heart, that the heart itself would one day be cleansed of all rebellion and sinfulness. 
So, um, so that law being written on the heart. Um, Jesus here is essentially saying, today is the day. Today is the day I am bigger than the law. And that this, um, this healing that you hope for, that you hope to have it happen, that you are expecting, even as you're practicing this ritual physical circumcision, you're blind to it because it's in your presence, because he had just healed a whole man. And not just the whole man, that whole aspect. I think that John and Jesus is alluding, Jesus is alluding to the whole person, that he's there not just to heal sick bodies, but to heal sick souls. That he's there not just for um, to heal this infirm man, but that that points to the spiritual wholeness that is available only through Jesus Christ and through faith in him and the power of his death. Um, so, uh, any questions about that before I pray? Okay. Jesus brings that circumcision of the heart. And he's inviting them to look into the higher things. Do not judge um, by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Look at the bigger picture, that he is, in fact, bringing something entirely new. In fact, something that they'd been longing and hoping for. So let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we invite you to do your good work in us. Um, Even as we go forth today, we ask that you would continue to open up our eyes to who you are and what it is that you have done for us in coming to live and then to die, and then to be raised from the dead. And we thank you for your good gifts, your gift of your very own self, that gift of your own self that you offered, not just out of love for the Father and out of um, that um, submission to the Father, but out of love for us. And so we look to you and we say, um, let us be cleansed through faith in you. Circumcise our hearts through our faith in you. Um, Do that work in us that only you can do. And so we ask this in your strong name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.